Hello and welcome to Amnesty International's In A Nutshell podcast. This is the second of three mini-episodes where we speak to transgender people about their views and experiences. In this episode, we ask people to tell us about their own transition, and we start our journey in conversation with artist and activist Fox Fisher. It wasn't until later on, actually, when I was a teenager, I started calling myself Ralph. And it was only because I started driving a car when I was 17 and it was a bit of a wide boy car. So I started calling myself like Ralph Tiger race car driver and like we'd just drive around with like a baseball cap. And <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and we chat to festival goers at the Sparkle Festival in Manchester, the world's largest transgender event. I think people now understand what trans people are. I just think people need to understand the different variations of trans people. I think society does react very differently, not just to trans women and trans men, but to trans people in general, dependent on how they present. Great, so Fox, if you could start off just by introducing yourself for us, that'd be great. Sure, my name is Fox Fisher and I live in Brighton. I'm a screen printer, I'm a filmmaker, all-round creative, I do a lot of design work as well, illustrations, the whole shebang, pretty much. You might have heard Fox in our previous episode, where he shared his thoughts on how trans people are represented in the media, this time, I asked him to tell us more about his own personal story and transition. When I was about four or five, I think I, I recognised that I was I was different. Um, I, I really felt like a little boy, and uh, that that was reflected in in fights that I'd, I'd get in with other boys. And you know, like we'd I lived in Saudi Arabia actually. But I moved there when I was four years old. I lived there for about nine or ten years, and during that time, I had a very kind of outdoor life, and I was very much considered a tomboy, I guess. Uh, I had a fight when I was about eight or nine years old with a bunch of the other guys, and. Uh, it was funny because one of the boys threw a rock and it hit a wall and bounded on, on my face and I, I had like a, a massive kind of um, wound above my eye and I, I dripped blood all over my shirt and consequently all the boys had to be frog marched around my house to apologise and that, it was at that point they realised that I was a girl so they, you know, that was really funny because I didn't want to be seen as a girl at all, you know, I kind of was so happy to, to ha kind of hang out with the guys and, and for them to just, you know, treat me as another one of the boys. I think my mum must have phoned one of the mums and then news got around that, you know, they'd kind of picked on a girl, which is, you know, it kind of changed the <laughs> dynamics quite a lot. <laughs> I, I always had a battle with my parents about wearing a dress up until puberty. So my nan would occasionally make us dresses, you know, at the kindness of her own heart, what a sweet woman, but I just hated those frills and it was just, it was such a battle every time. So I was, I was a good kid and I really wanted to conform, but I was seen as the black sheep of the family and I was seen as, as a difficult child because I would wear the dresses and I didn't want to wear anything feminine and it was it was a constant battle with that. So much of our identity when we're kids is tied to gender and the behavioural roles we're expected to play as boys or girls. But any conflict people may feel about their gender is only exacerbated when they hit their teens and their bodies start to change. So when puberty hit, I felt a lot of shame, I felt a lot of sadness about the way my body was, was almost betraying myself. I became increasingly disconnected with my body and throughout my teenage years I, I was very much a mess. I mean, I, I really tried to keep good grades because I, I still wanted to be a good kid, but it's almost like I led a double life. Getting my monthly period was so traumatic for me because 
it, it felt really alien for it to happen. But also I think I was aware that that was the start of my body completely betraying me, that this was the start of my breasts getting bigger and like my, my body getting more curvy. And, you know, I'd have to say goodbye to, to kind of the, the body that I had throughout my childhood that was very, you know, non gender specific, I suppose, you know, and, and now I was starting a new journey also because a lot of people say, oh, wow, you're a woman now, you know, and that's the last thing I wanted to hear at that age. You know, I'm definitely, I definitely wasn't a woman then and I'm definitely not a woman now. I had very little respect for my body and that kind of manifested in going out clubbing and leading a very secret life and doing stuff that was kind of beyond my age, I suppose. I kind of was always a bit of a thrill seeker and I was just very, very lost, I think. And, and that was the same way for me for, for my 20s as well. I did feel also quite lost. I, I, I did try and, and come to peace with myself and, and try and, and live my life as, a, as quite an androgynous person and think, well, you know, whatever, I, I'm, not, I'm not your average um, woman or, or female, but uh, maybe that doesn't matter, maybe that's okay. And sometimes it was okay and, and, and other times it would manifest in panic attacks and, and things like that. So I knew that, that something wasn't quite right, but I really, I really didn't want to admit that I was trans. I really found it hard to even consider that thought. A lot of the people I interviewed for this series told me that until fairly recently, there were very few places they could find answers to their questions about transitioning. I asked Fox what impact the internet and technology had for transgender people. I think the internet's really saved people in the small towns, in rural places where they do feel like they're the only trans person in their school or in their village. And, uh, <laughs> sorry, only trans in the village. <laughs> But yeah, it's a reality, isn't it? And, you know, I mean, people are finding each other through online forums and chat rooms and making YouTube videos and being part of that community as well. Hey, everybody, here's another film for the Trans Teen Survival Guide. I had a good chat with Taylor and Chrissy the other day, and this is the result of our chat. On Fox's website, you can see many of the films he's made with other trans collaborators, documentary shorts that tell people's personal stories, and other films that act as a resource for those in need of support answering questions that people have emailed in. Anonymous says, Do I have to hate my birth name to be trans? My friends who are also trans said that in order for me to be fully trans, I have to hate my birth name and change it all together. So that's a little bit problematic. I mean, first of all... Uh, who are your friends? Who are your friends? Why, why are they telling you this? <laughs> Don't let anyone else tell you how to be trans. Yeah. Especially if they're not trans. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, even if they are trans, yeah. you know, they're, they're not an their, expert. No their one's an journey expert on is you. not the same as yours. I did find it hard to say my name. I used to go by a few different nicknames and stuff like that, but it wasn't until later on, actually, when I was a teenager, I started calling myself Ralph. And it was only because I started driving a car when I was 17, and I bought a car from a scrapyard, and it was a Ford Fiesta XR2, and I was just like, it was a bit of a wide boy car, so I started calling myself Ralph, like Ralph Tiger race car driver, and like, we'd just drive around with like a baseball cap, and it felt really natural, and it felt really great to do, but it was, again, like a persona, you know. <laughs> that was great. Did you share how you felt with your sister or your parents or friends? I mean, my sister always knew that I was I was very different and she'd always be there to protect me uh, from, because I, I just was different and, and people would kind of pick up on that, I suppose. 
My sister was the first person that I told when I decided to medically transition and I talked to her before my parents because I really, really was the most worried about what my parents would think of my whole journey that I was, I was going to embark upon. Was there a particular like catalyst that went, right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to like medically transition? So, weirdly enough, it, it wasn't anything to do with trans stuff that, that made me want to transition. It was, I've had quite a few friends close to me kill themselves, actually. It got to kind of the mid, like 2005, I suppose, and uh, somebody very, very close to me killed themselves on my birthday, and I just thought, life is too short, you know, it's just way too short to kind of live your life as someone else. In the back of my mind, I was waiting for my parents to die before I actually began my transition. And that's such a crazy thing to do, you know, it's just that that could be, I could be in my 70s before that happened. So it, it was, yeah, it was my friend dying that, that just really made me think that life is, is so short and it's important to live your life. I couldn't imagine myself becoming an old woman. Like when I was thinking about myself like in the future or, or maybe at my own funeral, people being there saying, you know, reminiscing about my life perhaps and being like, oh, that was a good woman and she was a great person. I was just like, ah, that's not me and that's so inauthentic. So I just, I had to, I had to go through the process in, in becoming me. I'm Laura Carter, I'm the researcher and advisor on sexual orientation and gender identity at the Amnesty International International Secretariat. We spoke to Laura about some of the hurdles people face when they decide to transition. So a number of people that Amnesty's interviewed about having to be diagnosed as mentally ill is hugely stigmatising. It's people's gender identity, their sense of who they are is not a mental illness, it's their sense of who they are. So it's stigmatising, it's pathologising. And having a procedure that requires people to see a psychiatrist or a medical professional in order to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, essentially, it makes somebody else able to make a decision on what your gender is. So it takes away the, the power of somebody to self-define, to say, this is who I am, this is my gender identity, this is, this is me, and puts it in the hands of a medical professional who might say yes and might say no. So... In some countries, this can mean that if you don't conform to somebody else's stereotypes of what it means to be a man or a woman, then you won't get that diagnosis. When I first decided to come out and go through the process to medically transition, I went down to my local GP and first and foremost, they changed their system. So it was like a, a, a digital computer. It was a computer system that you had to use to, to kind of get your appointment. And the first question was, you know, what's your gender? And I was just like, oh my God. Uh, so that was just ridiculous because, you know, that was the whole reason I was there. So that was, you know, I had a lot of dysphoria about having to go through that form and say my name, which I didn't want to say, and say my gender, which I didn't want to say. So then finally, when I got into uh, seeing the GP, the woman, I was kind of seeing her about various things, so I, was, I had about four things I wanted to see her about, and the last thing was the, was the gender-based stuff, so I was really nervous about it, and uh, I kind of went through my list of, of ailments and stuff, and that was basically just a disguise for the fact that I really just wanted to talk about the gender-based stuff. And when I talked to my GP about it, she said, well, she said, you're, you're kind of quite late in the game to do this, and you... She almost implied that because I hadn't assessed this or done something about it as a child, that it, it wasn't really authentic or it wasn't really how I was. 
And she also said, you know, you do realize that it's going to take a really long time. It's going to take years and years and years. And you might not be happy at the end of that as well. You know, she told me basically all the fears that I had. So I didn't really need to hear that from a GP. I just needed a GP to refer me to somebody else to give me an assessment. And I think that that's, that is a massive struggle that when you know you're trans, it's almost like you have to go through this system for them to tell you you're trans and that could take years. I know that being trans and mental health issues are connected but obviously being transgender isn't, I mean there's nothing wrong with me mentally, you know. So it is a tricky thing because I know in order to get treatment they have to decide that you need correcting in some ways. So. I think it is a tricky one, but I um, think so. The reason I asked that was more, yeah. was was more about how, like, does that make it harder when you're like, oh, well, you have, well, I'm going to refer you, but I'm going to make you go and see a psychiatrist, which you do associate with mental illness, yeah. and you're like, does that kind of compound things or? Yeah, I mean, it's a shame really that 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 had to go, that had to be the case, but I think they did need to assess, you know, whether it was a mental condition or whether um, I really. You know, it's funny, isn't it? Because people shouldn't have to go through that process, but I can see why they'd want to assess somebody and just check that they're they're capable of, of transitioning medically, I guess. And, and a lot of mental health issues or depression and stuff like that for people does go away when, you know, they start their medical transition. I don't know what the answer is, you know, to speed up the process. I think that people do need to go through the system in order to get treatment. When you, you know you're trans, I can speak from personal experiences, uh, every day that you're not you know, getting on hormones, it's its really hard as well. And and same with binding as well. That's, you know, when you bind your chest, that's that's horrific, you know. And I, I you know, I bound my chest for about eight years and, and to, to psychologically to have to go through another summer of, of binding in particular, which is a really hot, really uncomfortable process. And to bind is horrible, but to not bind is, is even worse, you know. So it kind of put in a, a tricky situation. I actually went down a bit of a strange route. Uh, so there was another trans guy that was in Brighton who had prescription uh, testosterone on from the NHS. They had extra stuff. And because I knew it was legit, and because I just, by the day I decided to transition, I felt like, I felt like I should have decided that, you know, a decade ago, you know, I, I was so eager just to kind of get on my journey and just just get get started with my my medical transition. So that's my justification. But I, I did I started to take testosterone, like a two month supply of, of testosterone, before I was allowed to on the NHS. So while I was waiting for that assessment, I started to take testosterone using my friend's supply. And for me, that was that was pretty scary because I wasn't under the wing of the NHS, and uh, I. I'd never injected anything before as well, so that was that was pretty, you know, strange, um, but quite thrilling as well. I think it was quite cool to kind of take things into my own hands. Before I medically transitioned, I found it really hard to even leave the house sometimes. Like I would, I would put on different clothes and stuff and stare at myself in the mirror and just think, is this masculine enough? Does this look okay? And I really struggled with just the way that I, I was perceived by the world. So once I started my medical transition, the effects of testosterone were very, very powerful. I felt like it made uh, such a massive difference to my self-esteem and uh, just, just how I felt in general. I mean, for any, any guy that's starting the kind of the male puberty, you know, there's such a difference between a 12-year-old guy and a, an 18-year-old guy. So it's 
it's not immediate, but you know, I think I'm I'm on on a level with that. So perhaps I was 12 when I started, and now I'm I've been on tea for like four years. So I'm almost the same as like a 16 or 17 year old guy. So you know, it'll take some time, you know, for me to have like a proper beard come through and and things like that. But within the first year or so, I think that's when the most dramatic effects take place, and that's uh, to do with your voice dropping and the body fat redistributing. And I think after six months or so, it's it's possible to pass. And obviously the, the term passing has issues in many ways because it's a privilege, to pass is a privilege. And, and to pass, I mean, that's a tricky thing because it means that we have certain ideals of what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman, uh, which I don't necessarily conform to either. But I, I just, I, I did want to live in the world and be seen authentically. And, and, and to me, that was being seen as a guy. Next up, Louise from Amnesty goes to Sparkle, the national transgender celebration, where she chatted to festival goers. My name's Finley. This is my um, first time at Sparkle this year. I'm really excited. Do you think society reacts differently to trans males and trans females? I think it's a lot to do with perception of femininity and masculinity. Men are supposed to be seen as male, male privilege, so I think People that were assigned male at birth and then transitioned to be female, I think there's a lot more stigma there. And also, I think as men, trans men, we can blend a lot easier and a lot quicker. Hormones are very powerful, testosterone is very powerful. Apart from my short stature, you probably wouldn't have a clue. Whereas trans women, unfortunately, there's an Adam's apple, there's the extra growth height, which is why it's important for young children to get hormone blockers and then they wouldn't grow very tall, they wouldn't grow an Adam's apple, the voice wouldn't break. You can't put a voice back very easily once it's broken, so I think trans women face so much more work in order to be seen as the women they are. And trans women, I think we have it a little easier that we can go transition a lot more fully, I think. This kind of pluses and minuses on both sides, but yes, I think it is harder for women. Well, my name's Sophie Wood, and I'm Secretary of the National Trans Police Association. Do you think society reacts differently to trans males versus trans females? Absolutely, and that is particularly marked within the police service, because what we find our members who are transitioning from female to male are actually easily accepted, because it's like they're joining the right club. They, they want to be part of the in-crowd. So when people are transferring from male to female, you're actually kind of going really against the grain. You're exposing yourself to the challenges of, of difference of being trans, but you're also exposing yourself to the kind of misogyny that exists in kind of alpha male organisations anyway. Hi, I'm Sam. I am a youth worker for a trans youth group for 14 to 19 year old trans young people. I think society does react very differently, not just to trans women and trans men, but to trans people in general dependent on how they present, I think. Because there's still a lot of misogyny in society, i.e. sexism against women, people will often react much, much worse to somebody they perceive as a man trying to be a woman or wearing a dress because that's somehow a step down. Whereas a, a woman trying to be a man is, is kind of a step up, so that's, that's allowed in people's heads. And I don't think people consciously think that, but I think that's, that's in their heads, that's where they kind of see it. Like it's really bad for a man to be a sissy um, or a or girly, but it's okay for a girl to be a tomboy. So I think those attitudes really stick. My name's Jay. Um, I've been coming to Sparkle for six years, and this is the third year I'm involved with Buff, which is the transmasculine weekender that runs alongside Sparkle. I think, again, it touches on that subject of who can hide better. 
and, and if you have that preconception that you want to hide and blend into society, because I do to some extent, but on the other end of the scale, I, I don't really give a damn who knows because it's, it's my business and it's my journey and that's for my friends and my family to deal with, not for anybody in the street to pass judgment on, on where I am or who I am or what I do. I also asked Fox how he felt once he transitioned and whether he'd experienced male privilege. I have a, a wonderful perspective or understanding of what it's like to be treated as a woman and what it's like to be a guy, but also for, for my body for running on different fuels. So I know what it's like for my body to run on estrogen, for example, and I'm a lot more emotional like that and a lot quicker to cry and I can multitask, whereas uh, taking testosterone, I have found that I'm a lot more mono-focused, uh, mono I guess, and uh, I'm, I'm not as emotional, which I'm really happy about, actually. I feel more comfortable. Uh, I mean, obviously, I still, have, I still have feelings, I still have emotions, but I express them differently, and um, for me, that feels more normal, more natural than, than my body before. Male privilege, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because... Uh, we live in a very gendered world and uh, people do talk about male privilege and that, that's a definite thing for a hetero white male but I don't think I could ever even fall into that category because I'm mixed race and because I identify as pansexual as well so as a man I do feel that people listen to me more it's really funny I'm in a, a you know a group conversation with people and I haven't got anything anything more interesting to say than before but uh, it's something to do with the, my lower voice or uh, it's just something ingrained in everyone uh, people listen to me more which is really bizarre and it's really sad as well because it, it shows you know I, I really I've I'm such a massive feminist and I love women so much and I feel that that women really do have to struggle so much in order to be heard and that that really shouldn't be the case Honestly, I really think we're going to look back on this time, you know, maybe five, ten years time, and hopefully we'll be living in a place where it's no big deal to be trans. You know, you're a kid, you realise you're trans, you come out of school, there's policies in place to support you, your teachers can support you, students know how to deal with it, and people can just get on with their lives. You know, to me, the ultimate advancement is when people just don't care, you know, and, and I think we'll get to that point. To find out more about Fox's work and to see his films, you can check out his website, foxfisher.com. And please join us for our final episode, where we speak to Louise from Amnesty about her experience transitioning from male to female. I had a job for 18 years where I was away a lot of time on business. I would take advantage of that. I guess I had two alter egos. I had the male alter ego and the female alter ego. You can hear the rest of Louise's story and more in episode three, which you'll find on the iTunes store and at amnesty.org.uk forward slash podcast. A big thanks to all our contributors for sharing their experiences with us. And of course, thanks to you for listening.